Talk 93.9 The Eagle, broadcasting live from the Zimmer Radio Group World Headquarters. This is the CEO Roundtable with Fred Perry. Get ready for interviews with movers and shakers from our community as we dive in for a deeper look inside Columbia. Now, here's your host, Fred Perry. And good morning, good Saturday morning. Glad to have you with us here on the CEO Roundtable Show. We are very pleased to uh, welcome uh, a man to the to the program who has been in the news a lot this week, Dr. Peter Stiebelman, who is the uh, superintendent of Columbia Public Schools. Glad uh, to have you with us this morning. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. So this has been a rough week, and I, have, you know, one of the things I, uh, how Why, long what's you, been going on? Yeah. What's <laughs> it's hard to hard to imagine. I know. Um, <laughs> How long have you been the superintendent of Columbia Public Schools? Well, if you look at uh, how much hair I had when I started and how much I have now, <laughs> yeah. it, it appears that I've been doing it for 20 years, yeah. but uh, this is my seventh year. Seventh year, okay. But it's been a, a Rogaine week. But, uh, it's been a oh, yeah. I like that. I've never heard that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that um, when you look at all the decisions, and, you know, you've had your fair share of, of tough choices to make uh in your sure. career and um but uh, how does this one stack up i mean you you've had to make uh a very difficult decision about uh how uh the the district's curriculum should be delivered uh, tell us how does this stack up compared to other other things yeah, and I think you, you raise a good point in terms of we, we make a recommendation just like your staff in the and and for the county commission will make recommendations, but the board is really who makes the uh, an even more uh, difficult decision. Uh, but when you talk about decisions we've had to make, whether it be attendance areas or whether it's um, school shootings, and and then having to sort of respond to that in uh, and try to figure out the best way that we can keep children and adults safe or student protests that we've experienced here or or deaths of students mm-hmm. uh, deaths of of adults um nothing compares to what uh covid has meant just all the planning all the changing of plans all the if i never hear the word pivot again i would be <laughs> thrilled yeah that is definitely <laughs> yeah. the word of 2020 pivot so. oh my god yeah but yeah so i mean nothing stacks up when you consider everything that's been going on in terms of doing this and you know i know we're going to talk through the plan and things like that but just from the very beginning of, of our conversation the last thing any of us wanted to do was to say to families, we're going online. Yeah. I mean, every we kept looking for every opportunity not to do that. And, and I know we'll talk more, but just... If I could just say that at the front. Yeah, I mean, you have consistently. Yeah, you have. You know, the last time we met uh, together on this program was in June, and you know, you have consistently said all along that our kids need to be in school. They need to they be do. in the classroom. Yeah, and and so you recognize the importance of this, and and I, you know, I think it's sort of a. There's so much controversy there's so much misinformation uh that's that has surrounded covid19 that you know it's hard to tell uh what is reliable information what is and you know i I look i hate to take a shot at the local media and and i know that you won't but but having worked in local media for 25 years i'm i'm really embarrassed at at how wrong some reporters get the story. And, uh, so there's so much misinformation out there, not only in the national news, but also local news. And so it's, it's good to have these kinds of conversations so that they can sort of hear it straight from the horse's mouth and, and kind of hear, um, 
what the plan is, and, and more importantly, what was the thought process that went into the decision? And so we'll talk about that. But so for our listeners who may not have children in, in CPS, uh, give a quick overview of, of what instruction is going to look like now for, for the, the month of September. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you asked that because we only about 17% of the community have children in the public schools right now. Mm-hmm. They may have had kids in the public schools. They may be preparing to have children into the public schools. But right now, such a very small percentage actually have children. So those who are listening this morning may be saying, so what's happening? So, um, so for those who don't have children in our schools, just a quick overview is that there are three different types of models that we had been looking at. Uh, the first model is just your traditional in-person, in-school every single day. And in June, when we talked, that was one of our options. We felt really good. I mean, my if I were to go back and listen, I think I was very optimistic in yeah. June. So it was in person. Um, then the next model is something that the board adopted in early August when it appeared that we we needed to, to pivot uh, to be able to um, fulfill the obligations uh, when it comes to social distancing. And so we call that in-person hybrid, which meant that students were going to be uh, split into two groups so that you could um, have half as many children in your class classroom. So you'd have uh, group one coming on Monday and Tuesday and group two coming Thursday, Friday. And then the last option or model is virtual. So that is sometimes known as online, where teachers are teaching in real time and they are providing instruction. Students have the opportunity to learn while watching the teacher, but then there are times also where students are doing their work and then uploading it uh, to their teacher for the teacher to review and assign a grade. So unlike the spring, where it was very much, we're going to catch up kids who are failing, we're going to provide enrichment, this is school. I mean, this is every bit of what you would expect in terms of assigning work and grading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, the, the choices that you had before you. And, and so, of course, the numbers uh, certainly pushed you towards, uh, um, is it fair to call what we're doing uh, the, the, the Minnesota model? Is that something that is... Um, um, is what they're doing in Minnesota relevant to what we're doing here? Yeah, I, I think it's fair, although we've stopped calling it the Minnesota model because I had enough emails that said, <laughs> you talked about the horse's mouth, they were yeah. calling me a horse's ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, <laughs> like, we live in Missouri. I'm yeah. like, I know, I got it. Yeah. But you see, the thing is, uh, Missouri, it, it, its governor it, and, and its uh, Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed, have a good plan. They, they work together to put a plan in place in terms of uh, what communities need to think about as they return. So uh, this is not uh, one thing that I wish that uh, had they had taken just one additional step, which would be to establish some clear criteria for districts all across the state to say, here are the thresholds for which you should then be thinking about making a decision. Not to say this makes, this pushes you into a, a certain um, a decision, but rather says, up, oh, you've crossed this line. Now it's time to think about what, what you might need to do, whether it's additional mitigation strategies, additional layers of protection, or um, making a more restrictive model, you know, going from in-person to in-person hybrid or in-person hybrid to online. And so uh, Georgia has a plan. Maryland has a plan. Uh, when I say a plan, a cri- like criteria set. Mm-hmm. Harvard put out a criteria plan, but that's really for larger cities like Baltimore and, and Los Angeles and New York. It didn't apply to us. And so when we looked at what Minnesota was putting together, there are a lot of similarities between uh, similarities in terms of overall population of the two states, um, a mix of large cities and then smaller uh, cities like Columbia, uh, and then certainly much more rural communities as well. And so they were using a model that looks at uh, uh, 10,000 
uh, like the number of, of cases per 10,000 people, yep. which really seemed to <clears throat> hit a sweet spot for Missouri. Yeah. So, you know, um, one of the things that sort of has played into your decision making is uh, the, the students at the University of Missouri are back in town. Uh, there are currently more than 400 active cases of COVID-19 on the Mizzou campus. So how did that factor? How do those numbers uh, affect what's happening at CPS and and of course they kind of made your 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 per capita numbers mushroom a little bit. Uh, oh, sure. So, so tell us. See, I mean, we went from yeah. a positivity rate of ten percent for which is, that's what the White House two said weeks ago, the, right? Yeah, right. And we yeah. felt good. We said ten percent, we can do that. Um, I I know you know we uh, we've received some feedback of you should use five percent. That's what the <laughs> CDC and the WHO. Well, five yeah. percent, we'd never be in school. But ten percent is something the White House put out, and we felt comfortable with that. And then all of a sudden, we're at forty four point six. So, yeah, you're right. And so one of the questions we've received is like, so is it appropriate to keep college and university numbers in your counts? Um, and when we considered whether or not it was appropriate to, to do that, and, and we really did go back and forth on the question, we decided to keep college campuses, uh, at least the counts, in, in, our, in our own count uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they're the largest employers in town. So MU alone employs more than 8,000 people. Mm -hmm. So our CPS parents are working in dorms, working as cooks, working as custodians, working as professors and researchers. They're interacting with a large number of of the students who are on campus. Mm -hmm. Then college students are our neighbors. So more than 60% of them live off campus. So they live alongside our employees. Yeah. And then they also work in local businesses like restaurants and supermarkets. And, and they also provide child care to, to so many of our families within our community. So then we really then started to look at, so what are other communities like Columbia doing? So we looked at Ann Arbor. Uh, that's a community that we traveled to as part of the Chamber of Commerce and learned a lot from them. And they've become a comparison district because they're so similar. And so they use... Uh, the college students as part of their numbers as well. They actually also just went online. Uh, Lawrence, Kansas is another uh, example, uh, and they also just went online, and they are also using it. And so, I mean, there's something to be said about MU, Columbia College, Stevens, MACC, Central Methodist even. You know, they make our town the kind of place where you want to eat, shop, work, live. They, you know, they're one of the reasons why we have good public schools or why we have good health care, why we have good restaurants, music, art festivals, all those kind of things that, you know, we're really dependent on each other. We're, we're connected. And so I, I know some of us will probably disagree. Um, and it will be something we keep monitoring. So uh, because there may be a time where we say uh, they are stabilizing. And and so we're in a in a better spot to be able to start a phased in return. Yeah. So you know, as an elected official myself, I uh, I I live in what you would call a damned if you do, damned if you don't world. Uh, if any decision that you make, if you are lucky enough to make fifty percent of the people happy, uh, you have really accomplished something. And so it's it's hard. Uh, there is such a divide in our community, especially over this topic and, and the way that we should be responding. But I want to just talk a little bit about the what ifs. Uh, yeah. What if the school board or the superintendent or the district made the wrong decision uh what are what are the risks that you were sort of weighing as you as you were making this decision i mean what could have gone wrong so you look at this from this perspective so they spent um i mean we've had countless um special meetings about this this really speaks to the board of education's uh, attention and 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 interest in really monitoring this you know they don't just wait for their board meetings they've asked for additional meetings so they wrestled with this for another an additional three hours on monday 
Uh, so it probably seems like a world away from Saturday, but it is, uh, it's it's ever pre- present in our mind. So mm-hmm. they spent three hours and they talked about it. Uh, they talked about it at great length because you're, you're likely to want to ask me things about, you know, what about our free reduced lunch kids? What about uh, our families who are single parents who are trying to work and trying to figure out now what are they going to do with their kids for, for child care? Um, I do think that there's an argument to be made in terms of um, those who say our kids are going to be behind, you know, this is a global pandemic. Like we're all trying to figure this out, and and what we ought to be rethinking in terms of how we talk about this is just like what are the skills that kids need, and how do we make sure that they get them? Mm-hmm. And, and and those who might be listening, being like, come on, what are you talking about? You just, I'm, I'm really, I'm serious about this. When you go and and look at the number of standards that we say that children are going to learn in each grade level, one ought to be able to say what are the most important ones that kids need to learn. Right, they need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to how to, how to add and subtract. They need. To, there are certain concrete uh, foundational skills that children need, and then the, over the span of their life, they're going to pick up some of those other skills, uh, no doubt. Before we go to uh, our our first break, I want I want to throw something out there that I think is you know there's probably some folks in our listening audience this morning that are saying, oh, these teachers, these teachers are are the problem. They just didn't want to work. They want to take time off. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, I, I think that, I, you know, I read in the, in the press this week that the teachers actually have to report to work every day, whether the kids are there or not. That's right. So here's the thing. I, I think locally that the, they are being unfairly vilified. You know, I, I worked in Oakland, California before I moved here. I was a teacher and I was an administrator there. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, in Philadelphia uh, as a teacher, uh, you know, where they just announced they'll have soap this year. Like, that's their mitigation strategy, right? And so those are real working condition issues. But MSTA, the Missouri State Teachers Association, uh, Central, uh, the Columbia, Missouri, NEA, you know, they really are committed to our kids. Mm -hmm. And yes, they're me- and, and, and they're members, right? I mean, they want to return to school, but they just want to do it safely. So if you ask me, are they going to be back in their buildings? Yeah, I mean, the buildings are going to be open. We didn't close the district. We're not in a stay-at-home uh, uh, order. So teachers are going to be able to use their rooms. And, and the vast majority are going to be in their rooms. I would say, though, like Veterans United, like Shelter Insurance, we're going to allow some flexibility in terms of remote working, but then we also have to monitor that because you have to make sure that people are able to do their job effectively. Um, the vast majority are going to be wanting to be in their room because they've got reliable and strong Internet. They've got their materials in their classrooms and all those types of things. Yeah. Well, we, when we come back from this break, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, the challenges that uh, we face with uh, online learning. And of course, there was a uh, CARES Act uh, money made available to buy hotspots for students so that the kids living in in areas of Boone County that uh, do not have uh, good Internet coverage or simply families that can't afford uh, Internet in their homes. Uh, that's going to be made available. But we'll talk about that and some of the other challenges that are facing Columbia Public Schools uh, during this pandemic. We are visiting with the superintendent of public schools, Dr. Peter Steepleman. And uh, we'll, when we come back from this break, we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, a lot of uh, very important things. So I hope you'll stay listening to us. Uh, this is Fred Perry back after this on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle.
You're listening to Inside Columbia with Fred Perry on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. And welcome back to the CEO Roundtable. Fred Perry, good Saturday morning to you all. Thank you all for listening this morning. And for tuning in, we are visiting, as you know, with Dr. Peter Steepleman, who is the superintendent of Columbia Public Schools. And uh, we are talking about the impact on our uh, learning here in Columbia uh, due to COVID-19 and how things are changing. But right before the break, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the what ifs. Uh, what if you made a wrong decision? What kind of liabilities are there out there? And and sort of, you know, how does this affect learning going forward? I mean, there's just, again... It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't world that we live in. But uh, what were the, the other things that were playing uh, in your mind as you were making these decisions? Yeah. So, you know, I think about this a lot. And I, I know you do this, whether as a business owner of a successful media group, but also uh, in your role as county commissioner. You always engage in these after action reviews and you're and you're constantly doing after action reviews, even within sort of an incident command structure. And so um, one of the things that uh, I know that the board wrestled with was, you know, what if we are making a decision that is going to negatively impact particularly pre-K through second grade children who are learning those foundational skills, those academic and non-academic habits in the beginning, you know, in those early years, a fourth grader who's reading. Uh, may miss out on a few months of fourth grade, but they will recoup because they can read. Hmm. But a pre-K through second grader is learning those foundational skills in terms of how to read, how to share, how to understand, how to ask questions, how to, I mean, how to do school in a lot of ways. And so they made it really clear that while they uh, uh, they sort of took a straw poll, although they didn't call it that, before they voted, they were sort of indicating how they were going to vote. However, they really pushed us hard to say, this is not for an entire semester, at least that's not what their intention in terms of their vote was. It was about what can we do to begin thinking about phasing in. And so when you look at the model that comes out of the state that is um, way north of here, that uh, they have some phase-in plans uh, as things get better or as you can measure trending getting better, that they would start bringing in younger children. So that's something I think that the school board has, has sort of charged us to do, mm. and, and so we're, we're going to take them up on that challenge. Uh, it's something that Kansas City Public Schools put out in, as well, is to try to phase in those earlier kids uh, earlier uh, so that you're not closing an entire district or entire school potentially or just you know, trying to get kids, uh, certain groups in as, as appropriate. So I think they were considering those what ifs, yeah. um, whether they articulated or not, those what ifs were ever present in their minds. Yeah. You know, there's a few things that, w- that uh, I have not heard reported in local media, and that's, that's one of them. And, and uh, that's something that I think is uh, very in- important uh, for people to hear. But, you know, just uh, this whole consideration about the, the spread of COVID on campus. But, you know, the the contact that we have, uh, the fact that 60 percent of college students are living off campus, that it's the largest employer. Uh, I mean, that's that's very interesting information that you don't see reported uh, that certainly would weigh into the decision that, that's that's being made. And so I noticed that the uh, school board meeting the other night, you had um, uh, a, was it an epidemiologist or someone from MU that was... Oh, we had a giving, virologist, yeah. Oh, okay. His, his work is really interesting. Although, you know, it's Saturday morning, so I don't know if people really want to talk about um, wastewater, but right. uh, I'll keep it clean so that people can drink their coffee. And um, 
But Mark Johnson is a virologist on campus. He primarily does work around uh, HIV. However, over, since March, he's been tasked with doing some uh, work uh, around COVID and has actually now is working for the state of Missouri as part of his work with the University of Missouri. And um, so what they're doing is they are looking at the wastewater that uh, that is in uh, our communities throughout the state of Missouri, as well as Boise, Idaho. Hmm. Um, and uh, And what they're able to do is look at the... Uh, presence of of COVID in in our stool uh, as a way to predict whether or not we're going to have an outbreak. And so it is one of those, what it's called a leading indicator. It'll say, it's almost like a tsunami warning wow. to say like, oh, hey, community, get ready. In five days, it's going to be bad because the symptoms don't necessarily manifest until about five days after one has been infected. Right. But its presence is in our is in our school. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, Interesting. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And so we were, I'm interested not in that we're going to take samples of, of, of uh, the, the wastewater out of our schools, because quite frankly, I don't know any, any student who really, um, they prefer to wait till they get home. So, um, <laughs> so, but I do think as a community, he can give us uh, some indication about are things getting better? Yeah. Because if things are getting better, then we can start thinking, oh, here's when we might start our phase-in plan. Yeah. Uh, he's doing it on, on campus as well. They're looking at the dorms. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I think that speaking of science, uh, you've, we've heard a lot of pundits over the, the weeks and months that have, that have gone by that, that talks about the fact that, uh, or they claim that young children really are not as susceptible to the virus. And if they do get the virus, it's typically what they might uh, pass on is a much weaker strain of the virus. Um, I mean, is any of that science being talked about? Is that stuff that uh, is just uh, hearsay, fake news? No, uh, no, I don't think it's fake news. I think it's, a, it's appropriate to talk about it. There's a couple of, there's some, there's some new literature out there, though, that talks about children, uh, particularly younger kids, as being super spreaders. I don't know, understand why that is, or that they spread at the same rate as older students, uh, older children. Uh, because this is a novel virus. This is a new virus. It hasn't even been around for a year. And so, the, obviously, they're learning a lot. Uh, I I have gotten a couple of emails that I, I dismiss out of hand when they just say children are immune, right? Yeah. Well, that's not true. Um, and we know that the cases of kids have increased just looking at just a week ago. So last Saturday to Sunday, they went uh, 99 cases, became 105 for zero to nine years old. So you're like, oh, maybe that's not so bad. Yeah. Uh, 10 to 19 years old went from 385 to 424. So that was an increase of 39. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, a, and a large number of those were 18, 19 year olds. So you're like, are they college kids? Are they yeah. high school kids? Uh, yeah. so, so I think it's worth noting and paying attention to. So I, I, I seriously, I don't ignore that at all. And it's one of the reasons why we think that while infection rates among children is relatively low and their recovery is almost assured, uh, but they also don't live alone, right? They, they live with uh, adults. I, I think my father, because we're from New York, said, they all live in studio apartments? <laughs> no, right? So, um, but, but I do think it's worth noting because when a kid becomes infected, the adults in their lives then become quarantined for 14 days, mm-hmm. right? So last Last week, uh, when we gave our presentation, I just gave a quick sort of like through the week. We had we started with just three of our staff uh, last Monday who were um, on the 24th of August. Three had to be quarantined, and then on Tuesday it was four, then it was five, then it was nine, then it was nine, and then on just Monday alone of last week, this past Monday, we had 22, and then already uh, yesterday we had another nine. 
today I've got an entire ad, admin team at one of our schools. I had to now have a retired administrator go to the school to hand out laptops to students because the entire admin team has now just been quarantined. And so it is a staffing issue, too. And I think I appreciate being on this morning because you're talking about the role of a CEO. And the CEO has to know that they can provide the staffing and the, you know, to actually provide the service that they say they're going to be able to provide. Mm-hmm. And if I'm constantly quarantining uh, our employees, you know, at this point we're up to more than 100 by, by Saturday, um, that's a problem in terms of being able to provide the service. But you can provide it online because if your symptoms are mild and you can continue to provide your online service, then you can do that. If you are just quarantined because it's a, pre- a safety precaution that is a requirement of the health department, but then you can still do your job and and be able to do that. So we're trying to be able to, this pivot is not just because of the rising rates, but also it's a staffing issue, being able to actually provide the service. Yeah. I want to talk about teachers and, and teacher unions and sort of how they factor into your staffing concerns. But, you know, we're I think we're pretty fortunate here in mid-Missouri to have more moderate, more reasonable unions, uh, whether it's pipe fitters or, or steel workers or teachers. We read the national news. We we see the problems they're having in New York City and you see teacher strikes uh, possibly popping up in, in other uh, you know sections of the world. But uh, it looks like you have been able in your tenure to really maintain a pretty decent relationship with the teaching unions. But what does what impact did they have on your decision making process? You know, they have been partners because just like with any employer, when you talk about uh, management and employees or administration and and, and uh, teachers, you work together. And so you listen to each other and you meet and you, uh, you there's sometimes tension, but that's an appropriate tension. As I think uh, in our business, we all have the same interest, which is that our community will thrive because our kids will get a great education and, and be able to potentially stay in this community, uh, grow their families, grow businesses and, and just continue to grow. I mean, Columbia is such a growth community, and a big part of that is because people want to live here, mm-hmm. because of its schools. Uh, and so, um, our teachers union makes recommendations. Sometimes, you know, when you talk about the media, uh, sometimes there's a um, there's an interest in creating a wedge that doesn't exist. And so, mm-hmm. uh, it will say, you know, union uh, uh, sets recommendations, you know, and, and uh, yeah, they sent us recommendations because they put together a team of, of veteran teachers and new teachers from big buildings and small buildings and, and title buildings and non-title buildings and said, like, what's on your mind? What are some recommendations when it comes to the health and safety of teachers? What's your perspective? Since I don't walk in their shoes right now, I have been a teacher and I try to put myself in their shoes, but they're the ones who are going to have to actually do the work as in terms of classroom teachers. So what are the things that you need to do your job well? Uh, and then when it came to curriculum instruction. What are the things that you need to do your job well? And so they made recommendations. And then every Friday, uh, the um, the collective bargaining uh, unit, so that's CMNEA, because there are two teachers unions, but there is one that is the uh, the representative of the teachers in, in Columbia. Uh, and we meet every Friday with my core team and just kind of go through what's on your mind. What are some things that we want to walk through and work through? And, and sometimes we're able to say, like, this is why we can't do that. Uh, one example was uh, an interest in listing at uh, each building the COVID cases in terms of who's, uh, how many, not mm-hmm. the names of people. Yeah. And, and that became, it was problematic from my perspective because I think it can be um, identifiable and personally identifiable, which is a violation of HIPAA, mm-hmm. but also... Uh, a potential violation of just the the culture in that building or the climate in that building. Uh, and my example would be uh, earlier in the summer, 
after we were out and we had no students in the building, but we had a teacher who was had tested positive. And we sent a letter to the school family, the school, and said there was a, a case. And uh, and then people sort of self-deputized themselves as contact tracers and, and investigators and wanted to know who it was, yeah, right? And yeah. so it was like, whoa, that showed a very ugly side. So, uh, but again, we were able to share our perspective and then it was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So. You know, early on in the pandemic, there was, you know, we all saw the report of a, of a young lady that, uh, uh, it, that it contracted COVID and insisted on going to the father-daughter dance at her high school in St. Louis. And, <laughs> St. Louis. and, and so everybody knew about, you know, this person. And I think there was an assumption that, hey, if someone gets COVID, we're going to know who it is and we can stay away from them. And so, but because of HIPAA and other reasons, you know, you just sort of, and cultural reasons, you just don't do that. And so uh, that has been a, a, a part of the learning curve for everybody. But so yeah, we're getting better at it. I do think that. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. I think so. It's, it's uh, you know, we're all adjusting to uh, this, this crazy pandemic. But um, what about, uh, you know, I know uh, you and I talked offline about this, but, you know, when you you think about low income families and, and you put yourself in the shoes of a, that single working mom uh, or a single working dad who may not have the luxury of staying home with their kids to help them. What are your thoughts? What are the plans that are going to keep those kids from falling through the gaps? Yeah. I mean, this, my entire career um, has been to work in, in schools and uh, title one schools, right? These are schools with high free reduced lunch numbers. My entire career has been dedicated to trying to level the playing field. And I think education is a way to do that. And so when you think about the fact that we're making a decision that, I mean, Okay, so my kids are going to be home working my own, uh, and and um, and I think it'll be okay. And I think about even if I'm not there, right? And even if I don't even get all their work done, like the, over the long run of their life, they're going to be fine. Uh, for a family who um, public schools are their safety net for a number of areas, right? I mean, we have incredible partners, whether it's the health department, whether it's uh, the city and the county, um, whether it's the mental health service, all those types of things are great partners, but often the nexus for the services is the school, right? They're the place where they get it. So in terms of my advice or, or just my thoughts is that we have to partner. And I say that with, with um, so for example, uh, Boys and Girls Club is a great partner. Um, the Housing Authority. Uh, so I, I, you were a commissioner at one point, yeah, weren't sure you? Yeah, sure was for eight years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah okay. And so and I, I think I, fo- I just followed right after you. So I think we both knew Jeannie Rogers or know her oh, well yeah. mm-hmm. and have great respect for the work that she does. And so um, so the, the Moving Ahead program through the Housing Authority, they are going to create pods, uh, these learning uh, so pods, so that where families can have their children go and be safe while they're working. And I think that's a really... A creative way to try to support children. And so one of the ways that I want to keep our hourly employees employed uh, so that when we do return, uh, we have our employees and, and don't have don't need to furlough or, or if at least resist that as much as we can, is to have some of our employees go and, and work there as well to support. All right. Hold that thought because uh, we're up against a hard break here. But when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Superintendent of Schools, Peter Stiebelman. This is Fred Perry. You're listening to Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. Workforce development. Inside Columbia with Fred Perry on Hot Talk 93.9, The Eagle. And welcome back to the CEO Roundtable Show. Fred Perry, your host this morning. We are visiting with 
the superintendent of Columbia Public Schools, Dr. Peter Stiepelman. And we've been talking about uh, the decision made this week to have to start the school year with um, uh, online learning only uh, and at least doing that through September. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about just before the break was was uh, really something that you're very passionate about, and that's helping those kids who have the greatest tendency to fall through the cracks. And, and you know, one of the things that, that uh, as we talk about poverty in our community, I think that one of the things that always shocks people is that nearly 50% of our students in Columbia Public Schools are, are eligible for the free and reduced lunch program. And so, um, I want to, what, what is the plan for those kids who are relying on the public schools for breakfast and for lunch? And, you know, the, the cold reality is, is that, uh, sometimes those two meals are the only meals those kids are getting depending on their home situation. So what, what's your game plan right now? Yeah, that is so true. Uh, and I would also add that while we approach 50% in terms of free reduced lunch, uh, there are a number of families since March that have now found themselves situationally poor uh, and that they themselves also are trying to figure out how they're going to feed their kids uh, because they've either lost their job or they are cutting everything so they can keep all their employees for their small business. And so they are struggling to figure things out too. So the way we're going to try to support not just kids who uh, formerly are eligible for free reduced lunch, but also also for those who are find themselves in a situationally needing extra food, we want to step in and support. And of course, we have great relationships with the food bank. Uh, and, and also, over the summer, um, organizations like, uh, whether it's a governmental entity like the County Commission or the City of Columbia, but also Veterans United and the Columbia uh, Community, uh, the uh, Trust, uh, the uh, Columbia Public School Foundation, uh, United Way, they all stepped up and helped us make sure that we could provide food and transport that food. And so now that the school year has started again, we can pick that up again. So um, we will be uh, preparing meals that will go to 80 different bus stops around the city. Uh, We'll engage the bus company to help us make sure that we transport food daily to these stops. And then as we hear from families that need additional or that the buses aren't getting there, then we'll uh, add extra routes. Uh, For example, we use and utilize our homeschool communicators to make sure that food gets to some of these hotels that uh, I put hotels in quotes, but that are um, that are being used as, as homeless shelters wow. uh, to make sure that kids have food. So uh, it is near and dear to my heart, but it is also near and dear to uh, the heart of our of our uh, chief equity officer, Carla London, uh, our nutrition services director, Lena Fulham, and and just countless people who want to make sure that kids eat. You can't learn if you're hungry. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the the things that one of the themes that that uh, echoes throughout our entire conversation is that you really lean into the partnerships that you have created over the years. Uh, it, you're not operating in a silo. The, 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 you are in constant communication with health department officials, local hospitals, uh, local elected officials, uh, social service agencies. And so that's the kind of, um, of relationship that you had to build over the years to, to get us through one of these things. You know, it's interesting you say that. My predecessor, Chris Belcher, was really gifted at it, and so was uh, Jim Ritter, you know, and, and so was Russ Thompson. And mm-hmm. so I just – I got to meet with them regularly. Uh, I talked with them. And so I, I came quickly to recognize and understand that uh, CPS is, is like an organism that's dependent on everything else. Yeah. Right? And as we're dependent on everything else – 
uh, especially at this moment in communities in our community's history, I mean, each of those entities that you just uh, you said, whether it's the chamber, the city, the county, doctors, healthcare providers, the higher ed, uh, hospitals, businesses, like each of those. And so, like when I think about like how we're dependent on the chamber of commerce and local businesses, like. I know that they're dependent on us too. And so those who are listening this morning, are, uh, I, I, I really want to stress that I know that they rely on schools to be open so that children are safe during the day, but that they can learn and so that they can also be the future workforce of our community. Uh, and we are dependent on the city and the county, particularly our local public health department, as you noted. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're dependent on our hospitals and those nonprofits who work tirelessly. And so each of us is trying to figure all of this out together. You can't do it as an individual entity. We, you got to work together. Yeah. So your colleagues, uh, one of the things that uh, I have uh, been personally benefited from is the relationship that you have uh, built with superintendents at, in other Boone County school districts. And we're talking about Sturgeon, Hallsville, Harrisburg, uh, Southern Boone, um, you, you know, Centralia. So you have them. Yeah. Like, oh, all right. Very good. <laughs> I, uh, you have relationships with, with all of those. And I think people would be very surprised to learn that even though the Columbia Public School District is considerably uh, larger and, and better funded than a lot of these departments, uh, these other school districts. Uh, you are meeting with these folks on a frequent basis. Talk a little bit about your relationship uh, with those guys. And then uh, what happens when your pundits say, well, they're going back to school. Why aren't you? Yeah. So I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm glad that you've come to meet with our group uh, a number of times to, uh, I would say, mine the collective wisdom of the of the county superintendents. That really has meant a lot to us. Um, so we meet every Thursday. Uh, every Thursday right now, since we started in March, we have a Zoom call, uh, and the beginning of our call uh, always begins with the health department, so we can ask uh, questions and get and share resources. Um, and and it, it, I, I'm really particularly proud of the relationships we've built because that didn't exist um, beforehand, and so that is something that I, I, I really treasure in terms of the relationships we've all built with each other. Um, so. To answer the question, why are the other Boone County schools not following the same plan? Uh, our data is different from theirs. Way I mean, different. Way different. I mean, if and if you go to the Boone County uh, site and just look, there's a map there. You can see yeah. how many cases they have in their area. So if they applied the same tool that we're using, it would absolutely. If our data was as was as as um, as common or as similar to theirs, we'd be in full return. But for us, just for an example, like. On, on the 29th of August, so uh, almost uh, just a week ago, um, 125 of the 131 cases were in the Columbia Public School District, mm-hmm. like 95% of them, yeah. right? And so we that's why we started looking at like Lawrence, Kansas and Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and because th- that's really where uh, we had to go and kind of figure stuff out. So, um, but yeah, I mean, we know that uh, another small, I'll say a, a private school in town. So they also went back. And uh, nine days later, so this week, they had to close. They're closed for two weeks. Um, and, and then this is just to sort of talk about how it spills over into CPS. So um, three of the children, two of them are, are, are symptomatic, apparently, and um, but their parents are teachers in, in the public schools. Mm-hmm. So that's now three teachers who are now home for the next 14 days with their children wow. who, um, who I, are now considered close contacts. So, again, we are all connected, uh, and, and I don't – this is – I hope that nothing in my voice betrayed any sort of like satisfaction. I, there's none. I uh, I am I am I'm worried uh, about all of this, but uh, at the same time, uh, I recognize that this is a real this is a reality for all of us. Yeah. So 
this is a decision. The current plan is going to run through the end of September, uh, but uh, it's been noted that you're going to uh, meet again on September 14th and then again on September 24th to look at the the, the scenario um, and just sort of make an evaluation. Uh, what kinds of things are going to be important to you? I mean, when you when you sort of prioritize uh, the most relevant sources of information, uh, the things that you're going to pay close attention to, because I think that there's a lot of confusion for people. We we see things on Facebook. We see things uh, on the news. We see things on the Internet uh, that are just simply not true. And so how how have you filtered and, and what are you going to rely on September 14th and September 24th to make your decisions? Yeah. Uh, so there are two terms that I, I would, I would hope um, I could share with the listening audience. And those two terms uh, are lagging and leading indicators, right? So a lagging indicator is sort of reactive in nature. It's like an after action review. Uh, they let us know how we're doing. So just an example, just as, as a positive is our ACT scores and our AP data, right? The fact that we outperform state, national, international test takers, that, that, that is data that tells us our, our instruction is good, our kids are superior. Um, so in terms of COVID, uh, lag, and a lagging indicator would be, and so these are the things we would look at, those 14-day case rates, those positivity rates, uh, our staffing issue, right? They all sort of like connect like gears, and they tell us whether or not uh, we're moving in the right direction or if we're stuck. Um, now, there's also those leading indicators, right? Those things that sort of precede an event that tell us whether or not, like, they, we use those to help drive our decisions. So, um, our safety trainings or those layers of protection or that work that uh, I mentioned, uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, Mark Johnson, and, and then Chung Ho Lin, uh, and the work that they're doing with like looking at uh, wastewater. So these are the types of things we'll be looking at those. Um, and I think we should also add in their hospitalizations um, in the next couple of weeks should be telling about whether or not we are like other communities that have had a spike in its posit- in their positivity rates, a spike in their uh, cases, because what potential what apparently happens a couple of weeks later is that's when the hospitalizations begin to rise. And we've seen some some rising. Yeah, right? very and, subtle. Um, and so I know, you know, Boone Hospital and University Hospitals uh, seem very prepared. They have the PPE they need. That, that's everything I hear. Mm-hmm. And so I, I imagine that's true. Um, and so, um, but that's going to be really telling for us as a community is, is, is what happens uh, in terms of, and so let's say we're in a better position. I think that's when we can then, in those conversations with the board, say, this is when we're ready to start phasing in. We're not below 50 on our tool, but we see that we're at a, re- a regular and consistent rate of 30. We're going to start with our pre-K and K. Because we, you know, so we're not, I'm not afraid to to try to come back uh, with 19,000 kids and and with the data that it was. uh, And it's true. Uh, 50% said you made the right call and the other 50%, um, I just have a folder that says angry, whatever that person's (laughs) name is, because (laughs) I I really, I, 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 I don't know what to say. Well, I mean, people are I angry. I mean, it, it is, uh, I have noticed just a complete change in tenor. Uh, people, uh, and I know that it's COVID related, but I mean, people have become hostile and uh it's uh you see the things that get said on social media you see the the well uh, and your your you profession know. is to be in the media i don't have a facebook page oh. and i think it's probably really good for my heart yeah because, it might be absolutely because yeah. it can yeah. certainly uh if you get thin skin it's not, it's not the right business to be in um 
I want to shift gears and talk about something that uh, is uh, something I'm very proud of, and and it it stems from a partnership that that I was able to uh, have with you and and, uh, City Manager John Glasscock from City of Columbia. But something I'm very proud about is the the fact that uh, for the first time in a long time, we're actually going to get sidewalks leading up to Battle High School. And that is something that we, you know, have really struggled with over the years, and, and the neighbors and the kids that have to walk down the shoulder or where there is no shoulder of St. Charles Road to get to school. Team yeah. running on St. Charles yeah. Road. So oh my Lord. give us an update on that project. Yeah, I will. And and also in the in in the spirit of talking about partnerships, um, you teased the audience uh, before the third segment about hotspots. And oh, yeah. I really do think it's important to return to uh, you played a major role in helping us. I know that you when we convened the Boone County Soups, um, you asked them about reliability and Internet uh, accessibility. Uh, and hotspots are not going to be the answer for it all, as you know, that there are parts of Harrisburg and Hartsburg and, and, and other areas where um, just the hotspots don't work because there's no there's no cell connection out there anyway and so this is going to be a major infrastructure need i think if it has said anything COVID has has demonstrated nationwide that if 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 we're going to eliminate gaps you've got to have reliable connection for everybody yeah well thank you for uh being willing to be a partner in the community and and uh we're thinking about all the the turmoil you're experiencing right now superintendent thanks for the good work you're doing that's the voice of peter steepleman columbia uh superintendent of schools we'll be back next saturday with another great show for you this is the ceo roundtable i'm fred perry this is hot talk 93.9 the eagle this city is my city